Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with former U.S. Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us, uh, former Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman, also co-chair of Herrick and Feinstein's Government Relations Group, and author of the book called The Case for Impeaching Trump. Uh, we're going to talk about the book, but I, I'd like to start with the story of, uh, of a young woman from, from Brooklyn who was barely 30 with uh, not much in the way of political experience and took on one of the most powerful Democratic members of Congress uh, in a primary, uh, won and went on to become the youngest woman elected to Congress uh, in U.S. history at the time. Uh, tell us about that experience of, of going from someone that was relatively unknown to uh, and unseating someone for, uh, that was, had almost a 50-year career in Congress. What was that like at the time? That was 1972. Well, um, I, uh, my parents were both immigrants uh, to this country. My mom's family were refugees. Uh, so uh, I kind of had a different perspective on the importance of freedom and democracy. I, as a first-year law student at Harvard Law School, went south in the early days of the civil rights movement and worked for a black civil rights attorney uh, saw up close um, the horrifying reality of Jim Crow, which coming from New York City was uh, impossible to believe um, until you saw it, um, that this, it was impossible to believe that something like this could happen in America. Anyway, I took great heart from the civil rights effort because people without guns, without ammunitions, without violence, simply by peaceful protest, were able to change uh, centuries-old traditions of oppression of black people in the South, and uh, gave me a sense of optimism about the ability to bring greater justice to this country. And so when I was invited to work for John Lindsay, the mayor of New York City, uh, by a Harvard Law School classmate, I jumped at the opportunity and saw that you could do great things for your community and for the city and for the people of this country, and you didn't have to be corrupt in the process. So I uh, got hooked, I would say, on government, and I saw up close elected officials for the first time, and I said to myself, well, if they can get elected, I could get elected, and that was... um, that was my inspiration. Uh, luckily, the Vietnam War was, I shouldn't say luckily, unfortunately, the Vietnam War was still going on. In a way, from a political point of view, it was lucky for me. Uh, my opponent was a strong supporter of the war. He'd always supported the war. He supported presidential war-making powers. He was uh, supported by the military-industrial complex financially. And so that gave me a major opening wedge um, in the campaign. And uh, I won. Nobody gave me a, a prayer of winning. Nobody. Uh, but we were able to mobilize 
the people in the district raised barely any money, maybe 32000 and borrowed four. We had no TV, no radio, no polls, basically no media except for one mailing. So uh, we did it on shoe leather, and um, we see from recent events that young people can still emulate that path, and particularly if you're trying to speak out against uh, a um, ossified and unresponsive um, establishment, uh, people will give you a chance. And we are seeing that today. Obviously, we have uh, more young people now being elected uh, to Congress just in, in the past election. But it seems to me that at the time that you did it, it was, I think, fundamentally more difficult. Um, you don't have the benefits of social media or 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 uh, being able to reach out to people electronically. So all of your uh, contact uh, had to have been done, you know, on the ground, hand to hand, person combat. to person, person, person to person. And there's nothing like the human contact. There's nothing like shaking hands with people, meeting people, putting yourself out uh, to be uh, talked to, to be harangued, to be questioned. Uh, that was very important. And of course, there were very few women. In fact, almost no women running at that time. So I stood out in people's uh, minds. I mean, it wasn't just another white guy. It was a woman who was running and a young woman. And the war, I think, played a huge role. People were very, very upset about the continuation of the Vietnam War. And that played very much to my advantage. I was very strongly opposed to it. And, and people wanted a chance to shut it down. And so you're a, you're the youngest uh, at the time, or the youngest uh, woman elected to Congress. What was it like in 1973, being a young woman uh, in in Congress? Well, well, first of all, it was a record I held for 42 years, which was very sad. Should have been broken many years before that. Uh, but the thing that was interesting to me is that after I got elected, I won the primary and, and won the election. I uh, went down to lobby. Uh, I didn't want to be on the House Judiciary Committee, and so I had to meet with members of the Ways and Means Committee, Democratic members who were going to make that decision. And one of the um, one of those members uh, from Georgia looked at me and said, "Now, Ms. Holtzman, I'm not going to imitate his." Uh, accent very well. Now, don't you be worried just because you're a woman and a Jew. I said, well, now I'm in real trouble because I got two strikes that is three <laughs> against me. Anyway, actually, it, it didn't matter uh, because Congress at that time and pretty much still today has a seniority system in effect, which means that you get more power through longevity. The more times you're elected and the longer you're there, the more power you acquire. So I became, by the by the, my last term in Congress, I was chairing a very important subcommittee, Subcommittee on Immigration. And, um, uh, and in addition to that, because I'd been on the House Judiciary Committee during the impeachment of Richard Nixon, and because the members of the committee pretty much were viewed by the American people as having done a very um, commendable job, that raised the uh, estimate of the House of Representatives as a whole in people's minds. So I got a lot of brownie points from my colleagues from that. So after that experience, after my first term in Congress, it was 
I had a lot of respect for my colleagues and was able to work very successfully with them in getting a lot of legislation through, which um, was one of the hallmarks of my tenure. Yes, and, and uh, you know, the book that you've written obviously is informed by your time uh, on the House Judiciary Committee. And uh, there's, uh, you know, in reading your book, there's uh, a lot of parallels, of course, between uh, the, the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon and some of the things that are happening, happening today. And so let's talk a little bit about your book. You know, there, there's, a, there's a, a saying that you can't judge a book by its cover, but in yours, the case for impeaching Trump, it's pretty much you can judge the book by its cover. Um, I think it's as advertised. Um, and so, I, you know, you, you had me really right at hello uh, as far as this book goes. But, you know, you, you lay out, uh, I think, in a very uh, legal, informed legal way, what the, you know, what the laws are, um, how they've been applied, and then how they would apply to the facts that we're seeing today. And I think the comparison with Richard Nixon um, and the articles of impeachment against him are really, I'm going to say, startling in, in, their, in the similarity of, of how they could be applied. Right. And that was startling to me, too. I mean, I had um, been very troubled uh, by Donald Trump's election. I've been troubled by many of the things he did um, when he took office. But it was only after I was asked to kind of look at his actions as whether they amounted to an impeachable offense. I hadn't done that before. I hadn't done that for almost a year and a half of his being in office. When I looked at it as a comprehensive whole, I was startled too because um, putting the putting the facts together and measuring it I'm measuring those facts against the um, Nixon impeachment was uh, a very troubling um, enterprise, and uh, while I, and I started it, the the effort not actually having reached a conclusion because I hadn't really thought it through. I hadn't kind of put together a comparison of what we'd done in the Nixon impeachment with what had happened that we knew publicly the public record uh, with regard to uh, Trump. But um, it's startling to read the articles of impeachment against Nixon and think about where we are today. And, and the reason I chose Nixon was not just because I was deeply involved in that process, um, but because that's really the only impeachment effort that's withstood the test of time. Uh, it was a bipartisan effort. It was a successful effort. It forced a president from office, uh, the American people, applauded the result, uh, watched what we were doing very critically and carefully. And uh, I think it was, uh, it, it, that process worked as the framers intended it to work, as a way of uh, restoring a democracy that was being challenged by a rogue president, president who put himself above the rule of law. And uh, so that was a very good um example to use. I mean, if you think about the Andrew Johnson impeachment and you think about the Clinton impeachment, which were both wildly partisan um, and never had really the full support, at least the Clinton impeachment never had the support of the American people. Um, I, I think the comparison with Nixon is very, very important. And, and that's really the, 
the useful comparison, in my opinion, to make. It's not important to make a comparison with uh, highly partisan uh, enterprises we saw with regard to the impeachment process against Clinton and was the case with the impeachment process against Johnson. Right. The impeachment process against Nixon was very different. Well, you know, you, you talk about the grounds for the uh, articles of impeachment against Nixon, and the, the first article, one of the items is uh, <laughs> under the the category of making false or misleading public statements for the purpose of deceiving the people of the United States. So that was a one of the grounds in the first article of impeachment on Nixon. And it All seems right, to me but, like that hap that's happened, you know, a hundred times already. Right. But that <clears throat> I think what you have to you have to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. It wasn't just lying to the American people. I think a lot of presidents have lied. But it was lying about the cover up. It was right. lying to try to show the American people that really nothing wrong had taken place that, yes, there was uh, an investigation that took place from the White House. It was a thorough investigation. It was a complete investigation. That was the so-called John Dean investigation. That was a fraud. But that was put out by Richard Nixon as, uh, as showing that uh, nothing wrong had happened in the White House. Uh, so I, I think that, that you have to limit right. uh, this, that statement uh, to basically the grounds, to the grounds that it was um, addressing at that time. Right, and of course... I, I don't think you can just impeach a president for lying. <laughs> I think it has to be a little bit more focused and, uh, and uh, it has to be a little bit more than just that. Right, but let's. Uh, th there is a parallel, though, because, of course, uh, the one uh, against Nixon it was following the the, the break-in at the at the Watergate, and then there was uh, right. apparently some investigation that the you know the White House or Nixon said completely cleared everyone in the White House in their involvement. So it was not just uh, your run-of-the-mill uh, mm -hmm. misrepresentation, but it was a it was a, an out-and-out out lie to for the purposes of like it said for the purpose of deceiving the public about what had occurred. But right, let me but let, covering up of quasi-criminal behavior and abuses of power and all the rest. Definitely, I, and I think it's also important to point out that both the 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 Nixon impeachment started with a break-in into the Democratic National Committee headquarters. We still don't know exactly what they were looking for, and we still don't know whether Nixon knew about it, ordered it, and specifically condoned it. But there was a break-in. It was an effort to interfere with the presidential election that took place in June 1972. The presidential election was going to be that November. And they were looking for information, the burglars who are tied to the Nixon's reelect campaign, they were looking for information that could help Richard Nixon win the election. Let's fast forward to what happened in 2000 in the presidential election of 2016. We had a break-in by the Russians right. into the Democratic National Committee's server. They were looking for information that could be used to help Donald Trump win the election. They, in fact, found that information. They used that information. We still don't know to this day what impact it had. And we still don't know to this day Donald Trump's personal involvement in that, just as we never knew about Richard Nixon. But the point is that just like Nixon... Trump has 
has tried to deny that that break-in, <laughs> it was an electronic break-in, right. but it was the equivalent of the Watergate break-in. Trump has tried to deny that that break-in <laughs> was orchestrated by the Russians, that they had anything to do with it, that they tried to uh, um, affect the election. And, of course, he totally denied that they had any impact on the election as well. So we have, from the get-go, an astonishing uh, set of parallel circumstances between Donald Trump's election and Richard Nixon's uh, second uh, election in 1972. Yes, we do. And so with respect to that, the parallels would continue because although perhaps even if uh, – you know, then candidate Trump didn't call for the electronic break-in of the Democratic uh, computers uh, and emails. Uh, what if afterwards uh, there were misrepresentations to the public about what was known? So, for example, when, uh, you know, the intelligence services uh, say that that is that is what happened, and then the president comes out and says... No, that's uh, the intel. Don't believe the intelligence services. Uh, all that information is uh, is fake news. Doesn't that rise to the level of uh, a false statement for the purpose of deception? Yeah, but you have to put it together with a whole story. I mean, the point about the Nixon impeachment is that we didn't just have one little piece of evidence. Mm. We had a whole Argean stable of horribles uh, and bad uh, deeds that the president was engaged in. But here what you have is the president, just as Nixon did, trying to minimize the break-in, trying to attack the effort to find out what happened in the break-in, trying to squelch any investigation. One of the things we know is that, and one of the things that happened was part of the impeachment of Richard Nixon, and there were two grounds for his impeachment, basic grounds. One was a kind of an obstruction of justice, although the committee said from the outset that you didn't have to show a crime to be impeached. But it was kind of like just simply trying to interfere with the processes of investigation and bringing people to justice for criminality. And the second was abuse of power. And um, the first thing that Richard Nixon did when he was informed of the break-in afterwards that we know of. He may have done some other things, but what we know of is that within the day or so of, being, uh, of the break-in, Richard Nixon ordered the CIA to stop the FBI's investigation into the source of the money. He told his top aide, Haldeman, you get it stopped, get the CIA to stop that investigation. And the CIA agreed for a short period of time. That was a ground for Article One of the impeachment against Richard Nixon and Article Two of the um, impeachment of Richard Nixon. Well, let's look at a, comparab a comparable situation with regard to Trump. We don't know all the facts, but it has been reported that President Trump asked Michael Pompeo, who is the head of the CIA, to call the head of the FBI, Comey, and tell him to stop the investigation. And we have a similar report that he called, that he asked the head of the, of the national, the director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, former senator, to do the same thing. So we have almost, assuming that those facts are true, as they have been reported, we've ha never had an independent investigation 
that's publicly reported that. I hope the Mueller investigation report would show that. But assuming that that's true, you have an identical uh, series of facts, Nixon cover-up, Trump cover-up, and doing the same thing, getting the CIA to stop the FBI investigation. Wait a minute. This is all history repeating itself. And then, of course, you have the pardons that were dangled by Nixon in front of the Watergate burglars. They, he authorized people on his staff to tell the burglars that if they didn't cooperate with the prosecutors and give up the names of higher-ups, that they could get presidential pardons. Isn't that something we're hearing today? Didn't President Trump say with regard to Paul Manafort, I'm not taking a pardon off the table? And he was praising Manafort for not cooperating with the, US, uh, with the special counsel. And, of course, we have intimations that he offered pardons to other people. I mean, assuming those facts are true about offering pardons to others, and assuming we have some more information about the Manafort, what he said about Manafort and his effort to try to get Manafort not to cooperate, we have an exact duplicate, duplicate of what Nixon did. Nixon, one of the grounds for the impeachment of Richard Nixon, both in terms of Article 1 and Article 2, was that he dangled pardons to try to prevent the um, investigation into the Watergate break-in from uh, being completed in a proper and professional and thorough manner. And this is what happened here. Apparently, we still have to do some further investigation with regard to Trump. But on the face of it, you have a startling similarity. Two major things to obstruct the investigation. Then, of course, you have, uh, with regard to Nixon, the firing of the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox. That was done deliberately to prevent Cox from getting damaging information about him. And you have the firing by Trump of uh, Comey, the FBI director. Very similar. Again, more information has to be obtained. What was in uh, Trump's mind? What was he trying to prevent from happening? Blah, blah, blah. But basically, you have almost identical actions to try to prevent an investigation from going forward. So we don't even, even need a whole lot more than these three items. These need to be fully investigated, and we have a precedent if it turns out that, in fact, Trump was trying to prevent the investigation from finding out the truth, then the, he has committed impeachable offenses in these three areas, and just and you have a direct, full precedent with regard to the Nixon actions during Watergate. But you don't have to go much farther than that. I mean, there are, of course, many other things. Right. Uh, but, I mean, for, for example, the most recent revelation is that according to Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's attorney from and fixer for many years, um, when he testified falsely to the Senate and the House about Trump's dealings with Russia over the Trump Tower in Moscow, um, he was apparently called by some one of Trump's counsel and told that Trump was very pleased with his testimony, in other words, a false testimony. We have another exact <laughs> duplicate replica of this behavior, which was the ground for the impeachment of Richard Nixon. Nixon, and this is a much more obscure fact, it doesn't directly deal with Watergate, but uh, Richard Kleindienst, who was nominated to be Attorney General of the United States, 
testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee and lied about a conversation he had with Nixon dealing with an antitrust problem. Nixon was paying close attention to those hearings. He heard what Kleindienst said, and he never corrected the record. Kleindienst lied and said that Nixon <clears throat> had never ordered him to drop an investigation. That was a lie. I think that was the uh, – my memory holds now. I think that's what happened. Well, if Trump knew that Cohn lied before the Senate committee or the House committee or both – and failed to correct the record, and the record had to do with his behavior, then that also could be an impeachable offense directly under the precedent set in Watergate. So I think we need to just look very carefully at what happened during Watergate, the grounds of the impeachment of Richard Nixon, and, and do a proper investigation so that we can find out whether these facts are pretty much identical as they seem to be. They may not turn out to be that way, but they seem to be. And those, of course, would be um, direct grounds for impeachment. And so, you know, even if the grounds are similar, uh, you spoke uh, before about the, the partisanship uh, or potential for partisanship in the country. And as you recall, certainly better than I, uh, there was, you know, there was support for, for President Nixon at the time amongst many Republicans and uh, Republicans. In, uh, political leaders until uh, the tapes uh, were to be released and it um, showed that basically that he had been lying and I think you know the assessment would be that uh, those that had supported him had would realize at that point that they weren't going to have the support of their constituents to still stand behind him when there's a tape recording of the president well, saying something that he hadn't that's done. Not that's not 100 percent correct. The so-called smoking gun tape where President Nixon ordered the CIA to stop the FBI investigation, that didn't come out till after the House Judiciary Committee voted for articles of impeachment. That smoking gun tape persuaded the holdout members of the House Judiciary Committee to say that they all would support impeachment. But when we voted for impeachment, we did not have the smoking gun tape. We had a number of other tapes. Right. But there were Republicans who disagreed with that. And I think the important thing is when we started the impeachment process, it came about because Richard Nixon fired the special prosecutor. He said, no, the special prosecutor is not going to get evidence about me. Uh, these, uh, the special prosecutor wanted what could be potentially incriminating tapes, and Nixon said, no, you're not going to get them. I'm going to fire you. And the country said, no, the president can't pick his prosecutor, and uh, we're not a banana republic, and yes, Congress, you have to act. When we started – and that was in October 1973. Nixon took office in January, January 20th, 1973. So this was only, you know, this wasn't even 10 months later, uh, that Nixon, the American people said, Congress, you have to do something. I'm not sure they were at that point in favor of impeachment. Nobody on the committee even knew what impeachment was. Nothing you studied in law school. Uh, the only prior impeachment of a president took place under President Johnson, which is only, which is almost 100 years before. People didn't know what the grounds for impeachment were under the Constitution. So all of that had to be studied. Nobody did a headcount on the House Judiciary Committee when we started. I think people were just kind of trying to understand what the Constitution required. 
and what the facts were and start to put them together. The process was such, it was a very fair process. Peter Odino was an extremely uh, fair person and conducted himself in a fair way. And he understood that uh, Richard Nixon could never be impeached unless it was a bipartisan process. So he was very fair to the Republicans throughout and fair to the president throughout in terms of allowing them to present their arguments, their facts, their opposition, and so forth. But what persuaded the American people was not a smoking gun tape, but was the overwhelming weight of the evidence, ground after ground, abuse of power after abuse of power, that they saw, and they saw not all the Republicans, a third of the Republicans, supporting the Democrats here, and including some very conservative Southern Democrats who were supporting the impeachment, which took a lot of courage on their part. So I think that it was a fair process, as well as the weight of evidence that persuaded the American people. I'm not sure everybody understood all of the details. There were a huge number of facts to absorb and understand. But I think they were very impressed with the seriousness of purpose and the fairness of the process and the substantial evidence that existed. Yes, the holdout Republicans, they finally came across when you had the smoking gun tape. But even with the smoking gun tape, you still had 25% of the American people supporting Richard Nixon. I'm sure that even in, if you had an impeachment against Donald Trump, you'd have 25% supporting him no matter what the evidence was. Um, the evidence was overwhelming in the Nixon case, but there was still a quarter of the American people supported him. But you can't have 100% of the people 100% of the time uh, joining with you in an effort like this. It takes uh, Impeachment is a very difficult process. It was intended to be a cumbersome process. The framers were, were balancing an effort to make sure that a rogue president who threatened our democracy could be removed from office. At the same time, they didn't want to give Congress too much power so that the president would be holding to the Congress. So it was a kind of balancing act. But the fact of the matter is that um, the American people were persuaded by the weight of the evidence, the fairness of the process, the seriousness of purpose. Um, and uh, then, yes, the more conclusive evidence came out after we voted. But by the, when right. we voted, it was over, there was overwhelming support for what we did. You talked about the, the importance of the fairness of the process. And uh, what's your thought on, uh, with respect to the political climate that we have today, if we would be able to have a process that was as fair and, and uh, attempted to be as impartial as the one that you had when, when you were in Congress? Well, I think you have to do your best. I think there are a lot of forces against us. I mean, Fox News is a good example, and the uh, you know um, fanatical right-wing press is a good example of the obstacles to be overcome. Um, but I think most American people would be fair about this, and they're not going to want a president removed willy-nilly. They never were in favor of the uh, impeachment of, of Bill Clinton, for example. Uh, never. There never was a poll showing that there was a majority of American people supporting that. But I do think that people can be persuaded by a process that is fair and that has substantial evidence behind it, um, and particularly because we now have the precedent of the Nixon impeachment, which has won 
the support of history. I mean, nobody today says, oh, that was a witch hunt. Uh, you know, uh, they ran him out of office. He was tarred and feathered. People understand there was substantial evidence and it was a fair process and, and they accept the result. And I think that that would happen here if the Congress would move forward um, to, to conduct the, 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 the investigations that need to be conducted to complete the record. And if we can't get the, the Mueller report, which may be denied to us, then Congress has to go and do its own investigation here. There's not a lot of things to look at. I mean, I think you just have these three things that I pointed out before that could be investigated, which themselves would be grounds for impeachment. I mean, I think there are other grounds, some that we never had with regard to Nixon. I mean, I think there's serious issues with regard to the president's um, use of emoluments. Uh, there's a constitutional provision prohibiting a president from taking any money from a far, foreign government. But we see apparently that Trump's properties take money from foreign governments all the time, not just his hotel in Washington, but hotels around the country, plus his businesses, businesses abroad. And he's still taking money from or has a right to get money from his businesses. He has not divorced himself from that. And during the constitutional debates, uh, the ratification debates, uh, there was a discussion specifically about what is the remedy for a president who violates the emoluments clause, and the answer was impeachment. So that's something that needs to be looked at. That We, we did have an emoluments issue against uh, Richard Nixon, but it was relatively minor in respect of, in comparison to the other um, misdeeds that he engaged in abuses of power. Here, however, the uh, nature of this taking monies from foreign governments may be um, much different because I think there's substantial amounts of money uh, involved. And, and we also have questions about how and whether this has influenced his, his presidential conduct. Well, yes. And, and you know, we're looking at uh, a situation with the emoluments uh, clause, uh, which involves the acceptance of, of, of funds or other things of value from foreign entities such that we've never seen before. Uh, I mean, in, in the past, either we've had uh, presidents that were uh, didn't have tremendous amount of business, or if they did, uh, they, they divested themselves from any control over their businesses. And um, that's, you know, by putting their investments, let's say, in a blind trust or something like that. So this, we're kind of in uncharted territory here with someone who has a business, continues to, you know, not only use his business, but promote his business through the presidency. There's some who thought that he was running initially, at least really just uh, to, to help the brand, to help his businesses, even if he lost. And now he's just continuing to 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 do that um, as president. You know, what about the fact that we we don't have a divestment of assets and we still have all these these benefits? It, it would seem to me as though if the emoluments clause meant anything, that it would it would cover uh, the type of conduct that we're seeing now. Right, but that has to be investigated. It can't. You can't just say, "Oh, well, the president's violating the emoluments clause." I mean, you know, I'm a. Uh, <laughs> don't like President Trump, and I do think on the face of it, it appears that he's violating it. But, you know, I'm enough of a person who believes in due process to say, we've got to get the facts. So this is the problem. Here we are. Congress is now in its fifth month. Um, the Democrats are in their fifth month of control of the House of Representatives, and this should have been examined fully. 
Now, let's... Uh, I don't know what they're waiting for on this. So, so I'm concerned about whether there's going to be time enough to get this information, because I do think what's at stake here is not just a technicality. The framers were uh, on a monument. The framers were very worried, and they repeatedly expressed their concern that foreign governments would interfere with the American government and the presidency, and they were very worried that there'd be payoffs and bribes. I mean. Foreign governments had bribed the English king. They knew that, so they didn't want that to happen here. And so um, the fact that we now have a situation where we know that the Saudi Arabian government has provided substantial amounts of money to the Trump organization and actually through the Trump organization to Donald Trump, whether he's actually received it or is entitled to receive it, is really irrelevant but substantial amounts of money going into the Trump organization and basically into Trump's pocket, whether now or later, from the Saudi government. Now you turn around and look, what's he done for the Saudi government? He's refused to follow Congress's uh, order to um, act with regard to the Khashoggi murder. He's basically poo-pooed the Khashoggi murder. He's disregarded the Khashoggi murder. He's gone ahead with the war in Yemen. Uh, so you can say, well, is he really doing this for the interest of the United States or is he being bought off? And that's never a question you want to have with a president ever. And, and then, of course, we have Russia. Is Trump, is Trump really angling here for a $300 million giveaway from Putin, which is after he leaves office? That's going to happen if he plays nice with Putin. Look at what he's done. He's basically adopted Putin's whole agenda with regard to attacks on NATO, efforts to break up NATO, the support for right-wing governments and right-wing parties in Europe, which Putin is also supporting. I mean, if Putin were to write out an agenda and say, do this, I don't know what difference, what difference it would, there would be between what, what Trump is doing now and what Putin would want. So we don't know whether, again, the president's conduct is a, re a reward for a possible $300 million bonus at the end of his presidency, whenever that terminates, or whether it's because he believes truly that this is in the best interest of the United States. We shouldn't be in that situation. And the framers actually <laughs> repeatedly opposed this kind of bribery, uh, quasi-bribery of American presidents. Well, yes, they did. And, you know, when you look back at the, the framers' uh, discussions, as, as you did in your, in your book, The Case for Impeaching Trump, uh, you realize that although much of what they've come up with was as a result of compromise, there was a certain level of brilliance to much of it uh, because some things that they could not possibly have anticipated, uh, they've provided fail-safes uh, for... Uh, our country to try to utilize at least to keep us going in the right direction. And they anticipated the possibility of a president that might um, right. seek to do too much in that regard. Right. They, the thing that's brilliant about the Constitution is that the framers didn't know. They knew there'd be a rogue president someday. They didn't know whether his name would be Richard Nixon or Donald Trump or somebody else, but they knew there'd be a rogue president and they tried to provide for it. The real question is, can Congress do its share here? Because the, the framers 
put the weight of responsibility for protecting our democracy against a rogue president on the Congress of the United States. And there are a lot of people say, oh, well, we shouldn't be considering impeachment. We have the election in two years, and the election will take care of itself. My view is that the framers had exactly that debate when they, when they considered whether to have an impeachment clause at all. When they said, well, you know, we're going to have some bad presidents. What are we going to do to get rid of them? Some people said, what are you worried about? We have an election of every four years. That will take care of the problem. And that was a big debate. And, right. they, and the people who said we don't need impeachment lost because the framers said, no, president can do an immense amount of damage even in a short period of time. Plus, if you look back at it, what did the impeachment of Richard Nixon do? It not only removed him from office, but the impeachment process, even though it wasn't even completed, the impeachment process, because it was so fair and thorough and solemn and serious, discredited Nixon completely. He was never able to recover from that. And that kind of disgrace seems to me to be a very important antidote in the future to presidents who would commit the same kind of thing all over again. You will not just be removed from office. You will be forever disgraced. And we lose that forever disgrace if we just go blindly to an election and somebody loses. That's not the same thing. Right. Well, we, you know, you can say that about any criminal. You know, ultimately they're going to die. That's right. true. You get rid of them that way. You know, God takes care of them or the, right. a virus takes care of them or pneumonia takes care of them or whatever. But that's not the point of a criminal justice system. It is to set a standard and an example also as a way of preventing these kinds of dangerous things from happening in the future. Well, Elizabeth Holtzman, uh, you've set a great example as uh, a congresswoman from uh, Brooklyn and in and also, in your book, The Case for Impeaching Trump, we thank you for uh, your time and your thoughts on Miranda warnings. Although these are very serious issues that you've raised and that we've been discussing, we have kind of a lighthearted aspect of uh, Miranda warnings where we ask you to share uh, a movie, book, or music that's uh, of some interest to you that our listeners might be uh, interested in hearing about. Is there any sort of artistic performance that you'd like to share with us? Well, actually, since you asked me this question, I just saw a movie yesterday. I don't know that anybody's going to be able to see it right away because it was shown for one day or two days in New York City. It's called Christ Stopped at Eboli. And it's about a story of a, of a uh, doctor who was an anti-fascist and was exiled to the south of Italy in 1935 by Mussolini. And then he had to confront issues of extreme poverty among the people that he lived with and deprivation. And he learned to love them and he acted as a doctor for them and he healed them. And it's a beautiful story about how one deals with um, deprivation. And uh, it's also a, a warning for us today. I mean, there are people who you know, kind of left out and we need to address that. That was in, in Italy, and we have the same thing happening in the United States. So that's a, I, I, it's a very long movie. It's four hours, but it shows a, you know somebody who didn't want to be in this situation but was fighting fascism, paid a price, but learned a lot, and gave back to society. 
and um, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. And, People and, should see the movie. There's also a book and, <laughs> by and, Carla Levy, the person who, who went, who was exiled to the south of Italy. What's the name of the author? The author is Carla Levy, L-E-V-I, and he was exiled by Mussolini to the south of Italy in 1935. He wrote a book about it called Christ Stopped at Eboli, meaning that that was the station before the town that he was exiled to because Christ never got that far. In other words, these people were so removed from anything that would ameliorate their lives that even Christianity didn't get as far as they got, as far as they were. Right, well, it's a very sobering story, but heartwarming. Well, great. Christ stopped at Evely. We'll look for it. And mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth Holtzman, thank you once again for your time with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, for all things legal and some that aren't.